If David speaks in Psalms of God sheltering him in the sukkah of his presence on an evil day, then the sukkah, and here I draw on something my grandfather said, reflects in Jewish law the ability to see God's presence even when it may be initially invisible. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 182, The Sukkah of David. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. Let us start with a story about Sukkot. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs describes how, as a young married man, he took upon himself to create a holiday hut. But, he tells us, he had a rabbinic colleague with greater gifts in construction. Quote, My wife and I were newly married and had just settled into our new home. One morning, leaving the synagogue, a friend said, I'm just off to the local timber yard to buy wood to build a sukkah. Would you like to come with me? Delightedly, I said yes. We didn't have a car, and I had been wondering how to buy and transport the materials to make a hut. The offer was providential. We went back to his home to get the list of things he required. The contrast between us, though, could not have been greater. The friend, who was later to become one of Anglo Jewry's great rabbis, was superbly organized. He had drawn up architectural plans for his temporary dwelling. It was to be a standalone structure with windows and a door, and it was going to require considerable skill in carpentry. He had made a long and precise list of the materials he needed and was ready to begin. I was shamefaced. I had no idea how to make anything, let alone a sukkah. In school, I'd always come bottom of the class in woodworking, and when it came to practicalities, changing a light bulb was the limit of my ability. Humbled, I followed him into the car, hoping that inspiration would come. In the timber yard, he rattled off his list of requirements and ended up with an impressive pile of beams and planks and hinges and screws. I settled for an impromptu list of a few sheets of hardboard, some wooden supports, and a bag of nails. We went off to our respective homes and began hammering away. Before the festival began, we visited each other to see the results of our efforts. His was a thing of beauty, a summer house in which anyone could have faced wandering in the wilderness with equanimity. Ours was modest by any standards. I had joined the hardboard to the beams to make three square walls, nailed them to one another, and rested them against the back wall of the house. It looked like a large packing case. There was a hole for a door. The festival arrived, and as luck would have it, there was a storm on the second night. The wind howled and blew itself into a gale. In the synagogue the next morning, my friend sat dejected. His sukkah had blown down. What, he asked me, happened to yours? It's still standing, I said. He could hardly believe it. His elaborate tabernacle had been overturned while my makeshift hut survived. I must come around and see it, he said. I don't understand how any sukkah could have stayed standing after that storm. So we went to my home together to investigate the mystery. We soon found the answer. Unlike his, our sukkah did not stand alone. It had three walls, and for the fourth, we had rested it against the house. To stop it collapsing, I had joined one corner to the wall of the house with a single nail, and it was that nail which had held firm during the gale. End quote. One nail holds a sukkah together. The tale emphasizes the fragility of the hut in which we sit, but also the extraordinary endurance of Jewish observance. And ultimately, it is both of these sukkot that help us understand Amos's application to Jerusalem and to Jewish history. After a biblical book largely filled with castigations, Amos ends on a note of hope in the final chapter, verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the sukkah of David that has fallen, and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old. A promise to resurrect, to rebuild the Sukkah of King David. The verse gives us one of the most famous prayers of the Sukkot holiday, said and sung in Sukkah celebratory meals. May the All-Merciful One resurrect for us the fallen Sukkah of David. But what is the Sukkah of David to which the prophet and we in turn refer? One standard explanation is that the reference is to the kingship of David's dynasty. 
In other words, Amos prophesies in an age where most of the tribes are not ruled by the house of David, and he foresees the destruction and exile of the northern kingdom. The prophet therefore ends his discussion of disaster with words of inspiration, describing a time in which all tribes will be united under David once again. While this may well be the meaning of his words, it is the analogy to a sukkah that is at least initially enigmatic. Why compare a royal family to a sukkah, a shack, however sacred a structure it might be? Would it not make more sense to compare the Davidic dynasty to a palace or some other impressive edifice? It was Yeshivat Haratzion's Rabbi Yehuda Amital who gave us an extraordinary answer. When a house or any other building collapses, it can be replaced, but we do not see what stands in its stead as the same house that once was there. It is a new house. But if a sukkah collapses, as was the fate of the structure erected by Rabbi Sachs's friend, a sukkah can be put back together, and we tend to see it as the same sukkah as it was before. This is why a sukkah might be used as a description of the Davidic dynasty that is ultimately to be restored. Rabbi Amital put it this way, quote, This is what typifies Israel and Israel's kingdom. A house is stable and has the ability to withstand nature's violent storms. But once it falls, it is no longer possible for that house to be put up again. What is reconstructed is something new. A sukkah, by contrast, isn't stable. Any unusually strong wind will knock it down. The same is true for the kingdom of Israel. It is fragile, falls easily, and doesn't resist storms and shocks. But it always rises back up and stands on its feet again. End quote. According to Rabbi Amital's interpretation, the kingdom of David, the ruling family of Israel, and ideally the guarantor of its independence, is compared to a sukkah in order to capture simultaneously the fragility of Jewish political independence and existence throughout history, buffeted and ultimately destroyed by the winds of tyrannical empires. But it is also invoked in order to capture this very same state's endurance, eternity, and ultimate full restoration. But there is another approach in the medieval Miforshim, or commentators, to interpreting the words Sukkah of David. And that is that the reference in the verse is to the temple. The temple is the Sukkah of David because the temple was a result of David's vision. David saw the temple in his mind's eye before it rose, and Amos, perhaps foreseeing the temple's destruction, describes the day when it will rise again. If the temple is the intended reference, then the various Jewish laws pertaining to the construction of a Sukkah allow us to understand why the temple in Jerusalem can truly be termed a Sukkah. Technically, a Sukkah is a shelter, and it therefore requires three walls. But Jewish law provides all sorts of ways in which seemingly empty space is still considered a wall, part of the ensconcing shelter of this holiday hut. For example, if the walls are merely a requisite ten handsbreadths high, but they sit directly underneath the schach, the roof made of branches or bamboo, then even though the sukkah is largely space rather than wall, we consider as if the walls go all the way up to the ceiling. Similarly, the Talmud tells us that in theory it is possible to create a sukkah with only two walls, and one extra tefach added, one board merely a handbreadth wide, precisely placed, which can then serve legally as a third wall. We have sent you several pictures illustrating these adventures in Jewish legal architecture. And if David speaks in Psalms of God sheltering him in the sukkah of his presence on an evil day, then the sukkah, and here I draw on something my grandfather said, reflects in Jewish law the ability to see God's presence, even when it may be initially invisible. And this, of course, is the nature of the Jewish relationship with Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. We have, I believe, previously referenced Yossi Klein Halevi's description of the home of David Rubinger, 
who photographed the three soldiers at the Western Wall. And one passage in his piece is worth revisiting, describing Halevi's visit to Rubinger's home, filled with photographs he had taken. Quote, Which one is your favorite? I asked him. Wordlessly, he led me into a study and pointed to the lone photograph hanging over his desk. It depicted a blind boy, a new immigrant in the 1950s, wearing a kova temple, the conical kibbutznik's hat. His mouth opened in wonder. He strokes a relief map of the land of Israel. I call it seeing the homeland, Rubinger explained. For a photographer, blindness holds a special terror. Yet this boy, Rubinger was saying, was teaching us that love provided a deeper way of seeing than mere physical sight. End quote. With this in mind, Rubinger's most famous photo also takes on a new resonance. The three soldiers at the wall next to the Temple Mount seem to stare off into the distance. They seem to see something. It is therefore perhaps no coincidence that the Bible may refer to the Temple, the locus of David's devotion, as a sukkah. On that day, the Almighty in Amos announces, I will restore the fallen sukkah of David. Jerusalem is a sukkah, the Temple is a sukkah, because the sukkah embodies our ability to see what most cannot to feel the presence of what appears to be absent. For the Jewish people over the millennia, Jerusalem was the city that had been destroyed but could be seen just the same. A city far away from Warsaw or London or Cordoba, but Jews living in those locations still felt close to Jerusalem themselves. The Jewish relationship to the temple, in other words, to paraphrase Halevi, teaches us how love provides a deeper way of seeing than mere physical sight. This is the essence of the Jewish relationship with Jerusalem. Rabbi Soloveitchik once commented about the entry during the temple period of the high priest into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur. The Holy of Holies, Rabbi Soloveitchik said, had no windows. But, he suggested, during the time of the first temple, the ark itself lent luminescence to the room. But, he said, in the second temple, where there was no ark sitting openly in that sacred space, the high priest entered in complete darkness. This meant that the high priest was able to do what he did because he understood every step He knew where the ark had rested hundreds of years ago. He knew, therefore, where the high priest during the first temple performed the sacred service directly in front of that extraordinary object. The high priest, standing in darkness, in other words, saw the blueprint of the temple in the recesses of his heart. Rubinger shows us how a blind child can see the homeland. And seeing the homeland, seeing the sacred city, seeing Jerusalem, seeing the temple when it was physically gone, like Soldiers standing adjacent to the Temple Mount looking at something that cannot be seen is an alluring reminder that love provides a deeper way of seeing than mere physical sight. Thus, to sit in the Sukkah and ask God, in the words of Amos, to restore the Sukkah of David is to cling to David's vision and embody, therefore, Jewish endurance. Rabbi Sachs concluded his own story by describing his friend in all humility, seeing how one nail allowed Rabbi Sachs's Sukkah to stave off the storm and acknowledging thereby the lesson of Sukkot and of Jewish history itself. Rabbi Sachs writes as follows, quote, My friend laughed and said, Now I understand the meaning of Sukkot. You can plan and construct the most sophisticated building, but if it is not joined to something stable, one day the winds will come and blow it down. Alternatively, you can make an improvised shelter which looks frail and probably is, but if it is joined even at only one point to something immovable, it will hold fast in the worst storm. That nail in the corner, he said, looking at it with a smile I have never forgotten, is faith. End quote. So it is, and it embodies the way in which the Jews clung to Amos' promise, so that we now, in Bible 365, may bid farewell to this prophet by citing his penultimate verse, one which seems to have come true in our time. And I will return again the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall build the destroyed cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant 
vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. Thus do our times vindicate the faith of Jews of centuries past, the faith of our ancestors, inspiring us thereby to make their faith our own. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.